Alright. If you've got your Bibles, let's open them up. One of the wonderful passages of the Scripture to look through. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 today. You can follow that on the Bible app as well, on the Version Bible app. If you look up events, you'll find it in there uh, under Mount Gambia Baptist Church. Just a quick note, um, both men and women have major events coming up. So the, the big ladies event is uh, August 5, so can I encourage you ladies to uh, get registering on that real fast. And, um, but also, as of Friday, it didn't get time to get printed, but we actually have a man event as well on September 9. So an all-day men's event called the Modern Day Man Camp. So uh, look out, we've got a guest speaker coming in for that. And uh, so I'm very, very excited, men, about what we can get together and do. All right. So we're in First Corinthians. You've got your Bibles open. Shout out, got it, if you got it. Got it, got it, got it, got it. Excellent. All right. Well, we will get right into it today. We're looking at a, a very tough passage today. So let's get into it, uh, starting at verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. All right. Now, Paul has been in Ephesus at the time of writing, and he's keeping tabs on the church that he got started over there in Corinth. He's across the Aegean Sea. He's... he's he spent 18 months with the church in Corinth, uh, building up that group of people and leaving that in hopefully faithful hands. And obviously, he, he, you know, news is getting back to him on specific things. And there's been correspondence between the two and stuff like that. And this one has kind of got his blood boiling a bit. It appears that a guy has hooked up inappropriately with his stepmom. That's what it is. And this was something that neither the Jews nor the Greeks looked favorably on, okay? It was a no-brainer for the Jews. They had a clear command around Leviticus 18, don't go there. Your mum, your stepmom, don't draw hairs. It don't matter. It doesn't happen. The Gentile Corinthians had a culture of lapsed morality, okay? If you were called, you know, the Corinthian way was said to be the very immoral way. But it too had limits and taboos sleeping with prostitutes, participating in religious orgies, stuff like that, that was all perfectly fine. But your stepmom was completely off limits. That's where the line got crossed. That explains Paul's statement here. It explains his angst. They had someone calling themselves a Christian who displayed a level of morality that even pagans wouldn't step down to. 
was a shameful position to be in for both the believer and the congregation. The church was being scrutinized in every secular setting back then. There was a sideways glance every time the church rolled into town. Much like it is today. And the last thing any church in that region needed was this sort of thing in their midst. And perhaps the most shocking part of this is that the Corinthian church has actually run with it. In its immaturity and its carnality, in that place where the church has thought of itself to have arrived, they've come to the belief that they need to stay, they don't even have to start living differently. They were considering their sin to be inconsequential because they were free in Christ. They had a mantra that we're going to explore in three weeks' time. I have the right to do anything. How often do we hear that today? It's my right to do what I want. And in that thinking, they've not merely tolerated this guy in this shameful behavior. They're celebrating it. You are so proud, is what Paul says of them. Now, it could well be that it's a patron behaving this way and that the church is too reluctant to address it because of the power-broking that is going on. That's always scary when someone's sin can sit amongst their midst because they're too powerful to be reached out to or to be challenged. It could well be that the cult of personality has once again kicked in. And that this man's deeds are being swept under the rug because all his other attributes are so nice. Again, a dangerous place to be in. But Paul prescribes an alternative response to this. It's not a proposal. It's not a call for celebration. It's a command to go in the morning. To grieving. Paul is issuing here a radical call to cleanse God's living, breathing temple. And he declares that he has already made a judgment call and he tells the Corinthian church to do the same thing. He is saying this. Deliberate, unrepentant, immoral behavior that causes the community to question the validity of the church and its claims needs to be shown the door. All right, that puts it in perspective about, oh, well, you know, this is not a witch hunt for the looking for the next sinner. Okay, look at the guy with the microphone first. It's about the stuff that we really need to have in order, but we refuse to do so. Paul is calling for a removal from fellowship. Those who will engage in willful, unrepentant sin. And I'm going to prove to you in just one moment that this is more than just a bedroom issue. And he calls for immediate action. When you assemble, that's not like us and the quarterly meeting we're about to have after church today. We do it on a quarterly basis. We have this legal requirement that does that. When you assemble in their setting, is next service. The next time you meet to break bread, the next time you worship together, the next time you eat together in the agape feast, before the first song is sung, before the meal is served, before the bread and cup, particularly before that, deal with this issue in your midst. 
Paul calls the action here handing them over to Satan, which is a really strong term. It's not the last time he's going to use this phrase either. In 1 Timothy 1.20, he did the same with a couple of false teachers in Ephesus. This has been interpreted a number of ways, some of them pretty extreme. As in, the guy calls hope and the guy dies out there in the world. That's a bit extreme. The bare minimum that all agree on is to remove a person from any form of Christian fellowship. Essentially to remove them from environments which only Christians should participate in. The communion table is at least one such example of that, but Paul goes further in a moment. Before we start thinking of Paul going all overly legalistic here, Jesus spoke of correction in the church too. Matthew 18 is a very classic understanding of that. In what he teaches, we are taught that a wronged person should go to the offender to plead their case. And can I just say this? In today's church, this is largely ignored. We are content to almost double the size of our auditorium to fit all the elephants in the room. We're introverted, so we use that as an excuse to not deal with things that are just sitting around us and we just don't confront it. He says, failing that, Jesus says, you should take a few others to go and help you make your case. And again, this doesn't get all that, done all that well either. And eventually it becomes a matter for the church. If they don't listen there, Jesus says to treat them like a tax collector. Although Jesus hung extensively with them, he hasn't written them off. The meaning of what he is referring to here is how the Pharisees and how the Jews already practiced it. That a tax collector in that, that immediate context was removed from fellowship, removed from worship. And again, that's largely ignored today. And I think it's ignored because we don't always do its intent all that well either. Jesus spoke of the aim of gaining a brother. If they will listen, you have gained a brother. That's the aim. This is a restorative procedure. Paul speaks of the destruction of the flesh in order for the person to be saved in the end. It should be the case that a person who truly knows Jesus is going to feel the sting of not being in Christian fellowship. The spirit in us should cause us to miss it. The reason is because we, the creation order, was to live in community. From Genesis onwards, we were created for community. It's part of our design. We're supposed to be in it. God's kingdom operates in community. It's expressed in community. So when we operate, when we hang on the outside of that, whether we're removed or whether we choose to remove ourselves from it, we're actually outside of that created thing and it should create a craving in us that says, I need to get back into what I'm designed for, which is creative community.
it should be the case that if you truly know Jesus and if you get left to your own devices in what is now the hostile world to where you stand, the place where people deliberately reject the rule of Christ, that you would crave being back where Christ is. So turning people over to Satan in Scripture here means to give the unrepentant person basically a taste of what they're missing in Christ. And there's evidence in 2 Corinthians that this approach achieved what it set out to do. All right, let's keep reading here. That's the tough stuff. Verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore let us keep the festival, not with the old bread unleavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I remember sitting in a church years ago in a very legalistic setting. And because there'd been one or two spates of some untowards immoral behavior going on, the preacher got up and boldly, in his fire and brimstone way, pretty much told the whole church to stop fornicating. It was that deliberate. And using this verse, he explained that that particular behavior is least in the lump and they're causing the whole body of Christ, the whole congregation to be cursed because of their behavior. Stop it now. That was, that was, that was an interesting morning. Sexual sin is a serious issue. There's no intention of downplaying it here. Done outside the way and environment that God created it to exist, significant harm can come about from distorted and unredeemed sexual appetites. But it's not quite the yeast in the lump that that preacher suggested back then. The greater problem in Corinth was in fact the pride and the boasting and the willingness to tolerate that sort of activity in their midst. The world was watching. They were saying, hang on, that's low, even for us. What are you guys going to do about that? And the Corinthian church answers boldly, nothing. We're going to sweep it under the carpet. Isn't that awesome? Look at us. In the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus spoke of the kingdom way, he declared, blessed are those that mourn. And this was referring to how we saw our sinful state. We're supposed to come to a position of grief when we realize who we are in the eyes of God. There was never a beatitude saying, blessed are those that tolerate or celebrate their sin. And Paul makes it even simpler to the Corinthians. Your boasting is not awesome. The kingdom way does not pursue those things. A kingdom person makes radical calls in their life, which cuts off old behaviors in their lives and pursues new kingdom things. Yeast in this passage speaks of things impure in the eyes of God. 
And we know this because Paul then calls to mind Christ, the Passover lamb and the elements of the Passover, which pertain to the New Testament church. In the lead up to the festival in the Jewish way, everything in the kitchen was cleaned top to toe to ensure that there was no impurity in the feast in any way. There was no yeast lying around on a table somewhere. It had to go in the bin and cleaned up and bleached. There was no mold on the roof that could drop down. There was nothing that could create an imperfection in that. When Paul speaks of the festival here, he's referring to the communion table, the act of thorough self-examination within ourselves and among ourselves before that occurs. And instead of the yeast of pride and malice and wickedness and misguided tolerance, he calls us instead to go for the yeast-free way. He says, put on sincerity. This is the act of cleaning up our motives to ensure that our motives are pure when we come together, to ensure that they are pure when we identify to the world around us that we are the living, breathing temple of God. To have clear motives, clean motives, when we tell them that we are an inimitable expression of His kingdom. And He says to put on truth. Because we can be sincere all we want, we can be sincerely wrong, can't we? Some of the dictators of the world were incredibly sincere in what they stood for. But put on truth to balance that out. We have God's word. We know God's son. We have his spirit. In all those things, we will find the truth that we are supposed to follow. And with all that in check, Paul says to live as you already are. We are justified and we're supposed to live a life that reflects that. Because we anticipate that day when we stand before God, Christ in judgment and he declares not guilty. We're free from the bondage of sin. We're supposed to live like we're free. We are in the kingdom and therefore it's expected that we live under its sovereign rule and that its rules apply to us now. We're made holy, we're set apart, we're sanctified, we're cleansed from the yeast of the world. So with the help of the Spirit, for that is the only way we can do this, we are to live out what we are. Now let's get into the final part of the chapter here. Verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy, the swindlers, the idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Now there was apparently some correspondence 
before 1 Corinthians made its appearance. Paul wrote something, they sent something back, and there may be a case where Paul was actually responding to an initial letter from them in the first place. We don't have any of that stuff today to refer to. But we do have Paul referring back to it here, and whatever he had written in those times, it appears Corinth has taken it the wrong way. Back in Wangaratta, before we moved on, all the ministers would have dinner um, at one, at, at we would share, try, we were trying to get this thing going on where at Christmas time all the ministers would eat at somebody's home. One of the ministers would put on, you know, open their home for a Christmas meal together. And uh, we hosted one, and then the one before we moved on, we were at a pastor's house, and um, we're eating there, we're enjoying stuff, we go into the kitchen, and I noticed in there that the bench, the island bench, was actually sitting a significant amount higher than it should. Perfect for me because I'm over six foot, so it's like, really, I like high benches. But I just noticed this thing's high. Then I felt around it. And I realized it was actually a bench top built onto a bench top. And I'm like, what's with that? I asked the owner about it. And they had bought the house from someone who had attended a religious group that really didn't have a lot to do with any of the other churches in town. And they'd taken the idea of don't eat with them to to include not even using their bench top after they'd used it. A quick look at this organization's website said that they would not have a meal with anyone they wouldn't share the Lord's table with. And some here might actually recognize that. We call this a doctrine of separation. We all sort of practice that in different ways. We're different, we're separate to the world, we understand that. How that plays out, sometimes we go to extremes like that. Corinth has one of these doctrines going on too. It appears they've interpreted this instruction well beyond what Paul intended. He's told them to steer clear of dodgy people and don't hang with them. In response, they have stopped associating with anyone outside the church. There's a modern writer, one of the guys I love to read at the moment, his name is Dan Kimball. And he actually writes that the Western church creates a Christian bubble and we live rather comfortably in it. And Corinth has created a Christian bubble. In that bubble, they are living like they've arrived. In that bubble, they're leading each other the wrong way. In that bubble, they're not getting any maturer. In that bubble, they're ignorant of the danger in their midst because in that bubble, the air is getting quite polluted. In the Western church, we form bubbles. You go to Kurung Bookstore and those Christian shops, they are completely designed to cater to the Christian bubble. Got my Christian guitar strings, my Christian picks, my Christian erasers, my Christian coffee cup. It's all about this, everything has a Christian stamp on it. 
I've got a fish symbol and everything. The stats say that the average believer finds themselves in a very particular place after two years of faith, sometimes sooner. By that time, they've either won all their friends to Christ or they've alienated them completely and stopped working on them. Because the bubble has sucked them in. And the bubble can get really comfortable. The bubble can feel awfully like a rival. The world stops challenging us. We stop challenging it because we've stopped rubbing shoulders with the world. That's not a good place to be in. A bubble like that can get toxic. Especially when it thinks it has nothing to give an account for in a secular setting. Just ask Corinth and their incestuous situation. Ask those in churches whose conflicts have been festering for decades. Ask the churches, churches that get a mile wide but remain an inch deep. Frankly, ask those still reeling from the recent Royal Commission. Ask these people how they think the world around them regards them. You might be surprised to find a bit of disregard for that. We don't care what they think. Paul clarifies his statement here. Yes, I said to steer clear of immoral, greedy, idolatrous, alcoholic, non-self-controlled, swindling people. And the list he puts right there pretty much describes the average Mr. and Mrs. Corinth. He says, yes, I said don't even share a table with those people, particularly the communion one, but I didn't mean the community around you. You're not to find some little remote place and leave town and be your own thing. Because that is their way of life and your task as the church is to call those people out of that way of life into the kingdom. But Paul says, I meant the ones who call themselves kingdom people but still live like Corinthians with no desire to change in any way. This is not a judgment call on the world around them. In fact, he says this is something that judgment is something we cannot do. This, Jesus is the only person who will ever be able to do that, and that's in the final day. Instead, this is a judgment call on those inside the church where such accountability must take place for the sake of the world that is watching the church closely. The mission of the church is to announce and demonstrate the kingdom of God. And we need to ensure that we are demonstrating something truly life-changing and powerful. We need to be an open, trans book, transparent book for all the world to see us. Matthew says this, Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So that they actually see you. They see what is coming out of you. They see what, what is radiating from you. They see what the Spirit is doing in you. And they go, I can glorify God because of what I see in you. What an amazing challenge that is from Jesus there. 
There is an expectation here that the church in Corinth is going to do the right thing. And it's not just an issue of sexual behaviour here. That's a trigger for Paul's point. But if a person would rather deliberately be a person of the world rather than a person of the kingdom, let them linger in that space rather than ours for the, until the craving of fellowship and the craving for the kingdom way returns. Because if Jesus is at work and they're listening at least a little bit, they are going to be back in the fold. Paul, I must reiterate this, is talking about here restoration, not rejection. It's not a case of I cast thee out and forget all about them. In fact, earlier in his earlier letters, Paul has already instructed another church about how to handle this. This chapter 3 says this, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. Get down to verse 11. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. How poetic is that, mate? Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. As for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. In other words, that they come to their senses. They realize that they need some work, that they need some, cor- some correcting work to take place in their life. Yet, do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. People who want to live like the world, not the kingdom, are not enemies. They won't be the sort of people that become voting members in the congregation. They certainly will not lead in any way. If we take this as serious as Paul, then they really probably shouldn't be involved in next week's communion table either. Something to be mindful of. However, they still remain as part of our mission. There needs to be a degree of staying in touch either till they return or, and we've tracked with them, or they refuse to listen anymore. We need to note, as I said earlier, that this is in no way meant to foster a witch hunt culture or an environment of legalism either. The church is not and will not be a perfect entity this side of eternity. It will continually be a flawed and frail group of people trying to work out this faith deal, trying to be faithful to Christ's returns. If you watch me closely, you will find me messing up from time to time. You will find something silly, stupid, sinful if you followed me long enough. A case could be made that this person being ejected is actually still saved since Paul speaks of letting the flesh die but the spirit still be saved here. If he didn't return to the church body, he could well be the sort of person who entered, as Paul already taught, as one escaping the flames. Ultimately, that's for Jesus to decide. But in what Paul says here, We are a kingdom community. We're an expression of God's kingdom. But there will be people who populate churches who actually have a complete disregard for the kingdom way. 
if that's not your concern, if that's not your desire, then why do we gather? Paul says a willful departure from the kingdom way, a refusal to listen to instruction, a motivation of living like the world and its desires rather than pursuing the kingdom, a complete disregard for any call to holiness. I just want to be part of something I never ever want to change. This might not be the community for you if that's the case. A life that refuses to deal with issues of immorality, of division, of greed, slander, Addictions that we won't be accountable about. People who live that way and expect the church to embrace us exactly and only how we are now, with no difference in sight. That's not on. If we live a life that causes the world around us to question whether we're the real deal or not. In other words, we're not transparent, we're hypocrites. These are the sort of people that really cannot consider the church to be home because that's not what Christ's community is. Neither is it what the secular community expects from us either. We are called by all who are watching us to live different than that, to live as we are, to anticipate what is to come, to live what we are now. We are a kingdom community. We are kingdom people. We are holy and righteous. We are justified. Live that way so that others may see us and see the kingdom in us. I'm going to leave it there today. That's a tough one to sort of unload at us doesn't get much easier, does it? I'm very, very excited about next Sunday. But for now, I just want to pause and ponder where we might be at. Can you perhaps close your eyes? Just make it you and Jesus for a moment.